Welcome back to another episode of FinTech Business Weekly. This week, we're talking about banking as a service and regulation. And while what we call banking as a service isn't entirely new, uh, interest in the space has been accelerating. Now, the number of non-bank companies working with licensed regulated banks to offer products that consumers are using you know, has increased pretty dramatically in the span of the last couple of years. And while we may have seen this before in sectors like prepaid cards uh, and lending, it's really expanded significantly. We've also seen the emergence of new uh, entities or new players, what what some are calling banking as a service platforms or middleware uh, that serve to connect non-bank fintech companies to one or multiple partner banks behind the scenes. Uh, and just to give a frame of reference, you know, a company like Chime, which works with multiple partner banks, is now serving an estimated 14.5 million customers. As the number of companies, banks, and end consumers in the space has increased, uh, so has regulatory scrutiny. Uh, thankfully, today we have a couple of participants in that ecosystem here to discuss banking as a service, uh, regulation, and compliance. Uh, guests today on the show include Sankit Pathak, CEO of Synapse, uh, and Shaul David, head of banking at Railser, uh, which was previously known as RailsBank. And to get started, we're going to have them give us uh, a brief introduction on who they are and more importantly, what their company is and how it fits into the banking as a service landscape. Uh, Shaul, thank you for taking the time today. And can you sort of give us a brief brief overview of Railser? Thank you for having me, Jason. Um, so my name is Shaul. Uh, Rails are based in London. Um, we're a UK-based embedded finance platform. Um, and we like to focus on the embedded finance um, and, the, and the experience that um, our customers can build with the banking as a service platform, where the banking as a service is the kind of the capability, but the outcome to the end uh, consumer is what, what we call the, the embedded finance. Um, and we're operating across UK, Europe, and, and the US at the moment. So um, we've got some good um, view of, of the difference in regulations on both markets. Um, been around for six years. I've been with the company for three. Um, and yeah, I look forward to the conversation. Thank you so much for that context. I'm really interested to hear uh, some of your experience in context, given that you know my my listeners or readers will know I probably spend you know eighty or ninety percent of my time thinking about the U.S. environment, and you know it sounds like the U.K. Uh, is quite a bit different, and and so you know your experience and your frame of reference and sort of a comparative sense is going to be I think really interesting to hear about. Um, Sangeet, how about you and uh, Synapse? Yeah. Uh, again, thanks. Thanks for having me, Jason. Um, yeah, to give people more context into Synapse, we are a banking as a service provider based in, primarily in the U.S. Um, uh, the value proposition we have in the market is uh, if you just want to take solutions live on, in deposits, credit, or crypto space, um, most likely Synapse is like the one-stop shop you can use. Um, our emphasis ends up being a whole lot more on how can we take our customers to market as quickly as possible and require them to integrate with as little to no other vendors as needed to be able to launch uh, a pretty compelling product? Um, and we do that in like all three domains at this point, deposit, credit, crypto. Crypto I put under investments, but, but specifically under investments, it's crypto. So that's what we do. That's actually, I think, a really great segue. I mean, when you read about 
the value proposition of banking as a service broadly, one of the recurring themes is you know, speed to market, that it makes it faster for a fintech or for a, a non-financial company to launch a financial services product and cost to market, that it makes it simpler to do this. Uh, there tend to be two sort of underlying things that enable that. You know, one is technology, you know, particularly in the US, a lot of the partner banks that play in this space or have played in this space historically tend to be smaller and older institutions, which may not always be the most technologically sophisticated. Uh, but there's also the regulation and compliance piece. And you know, it's worth noting that you know, different partner banks and different banking as a service providers um, have different risk tolerances and different approaches to different aspects of this. But I find a lot of the conversation tends to be kind of at a, at a 30,000 foot level um, and, you know, that makes it a little bit difficult to think about more, uh, technically, you know, how does this work in practice? I would love to hear a little bit more specifically from each of you about a specific area of regulation that could be something like KYC or transaction monitoring or, you know, how customer complaints are handled and sort of unpack a little bit. How does that work in your you know, banking as a service relationships and your customer customer models. Uh, Senki, why don't we start with you if that's okay? Yeah, for sure. Um, and Jason, yeah, what you said, right? Like it might work differently based on different banking as a service provider. Um, generally, by and large, if you if you were to plot this um, on on kind of a graph. Um, you'll have a scatter plot of some vast providers that are point solutions, which is they only handle certain aspects of things. Um, uh, Marketa is a really good example of it. Marketa is an issuer processor, but they don't really manage KYC and uh, transaction monitoring and all these other workflows for customers. Uh, while you have somebody like Synapse who sits on the other side, which, which we would fall under not a point solution, but a comprehensive solution. And we try to handle as much of this as we can, right? So in case of Synapse, what that really means is KYC, AML, uh, um, uh, sanctions monitoring, all of that we tend to centralize so that gets baked into the banking as a service platform some reg e aspects get baked in as well which is giving provisional credits rescinding provisional credits withholding them and so on and so on while other areas like udap which for the listeners uh, primarily talks about deceptive practices around marketing your product and reg e around support and funds withholding things like that um, uh, some of those some aspects of reg e even fund, funds withholding is co-shared uh, synapse could put, put a hold on an account or a fintech company could put a hold on an account while support is solely owned by a fintech company right so depending on depending on where you sit uh, uh, the emphasis on how much a BAS provider handles changes. So now if I zoom into just Synapse, uh, here's the value proposition that BAS, a, a full a full feature BAS can provide in the market. Uh, before Synapse got started, like in the US, uh, you had uh, uh, Bancorp Bank that was onboarding companies like Chime. At the most, you would have like a couple of relationships every year get inked and then go live with Bancorp. Uh, the biggest accelerant that BAS provided was because 
we could centralize a lot of these governance and control practices around transaction monitoring, KYC, uh, compliance fraud, um, some aspects of Reg E. Uh, it made the whole fintech layer far more scalable because there were portions of the infrastructure that that were now centralized versus before Chime was building their own, uh, uh, then Simple was building their own, Movin was building their own, and so on and so on. Uh, and that's kind of like one of the biggest biggest pieces that like a BAS relationship ended up providing while you still had to have deceptive mark, uh, uh, de deceptive practices and customer support and also financial fraud, those three areas still be decentralized, which is the fintech company owning, owning all of those areas. Um, but by and large, that's where we are today. Like we are at a place in the ecosystem where some things have become centralized, which essentially makes it far more scalable. I believe financial fraud will in next six to 12 months would also become centralized. But the pieces that are still not like centralized, um, they might be getting scalable uh, are like, how does a fintech market their product? Uh, uh, does the fintech have enough cash on hand so that if if things went south, they could still serve their customers properly. How's customer support working? Um, so we're, we're at a point in maturity at the industry where we have like a real scale problem. And this is like a real scale problem, right? Which is you have tons more logos than you ever had before. And now everybody in the industry, from regulators to banks to BAS providers, the question they're asking is, how do we scale this next layer of regulatory oversight so that it seems like more and more fintech products are going to exist. More fintech products are even going to get embedded into 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 ecosystem. So how can we scale and support mm -hmm. that layer even further? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of like at the core of the conversation now. And, and that makes sense. I mean, I'll admit I previously had a mental model where you know an underlying bank or banks worked as a service provider to a BAS platform like Synapse. And in the course of, of you know, researching and, and sort of reporting on this topic, spoke with people who sort of challenged that mental model and said, no, really, these banking as a service providers that are, that are sort of middleware layers uh, like a Synapse are working as service providers to the bank to enable them to scale relationships with fintechs, which was really a different way of thinking about it. I'm curious, Shamal, uh, to hear a little bit about how it's how it might be different in the UK, what sort of challenges or opportunities there are, and, and how it compares to um, you know what we heard about the US environment. Yeah, uh, so I, I would agree with most of uh, what Sangat said. I mean, all of it really. Um, the regulatory obligations of the license holder, uh, whether that's a bank or a payment service provider in, in, in Europe, are the same. And those are not changing uh, because of the model uh, that uh, the, the products are being uh, distributed to the market, whether that's through a direct consumer or through a platform or through a third party fintech, um, etc. So the regulators are um, you know, always going to be concerned with consumer protection always be concerned with um, the suitability of, of products that are being marketed to the consumer, um, how they're marketed and you know whether they're um, well protected, well presented um, and, and appropriate. So all of that has not changed. And, and the question is um, you know, who's responsible for um, delivering that service and, and um, 
performing those activities so that the regulated entity at the end of the day is comfortable that uh, they can discharge all those regulatory obligations. Um, so I think that the, the platforms have a role, a big role to play there um, in, again, like, like Sankat said, centralizing that for um, across multiple partners for the bank or, or the regulated entity. Um, and doing that is, is actually quite a different skill set um, than normal banks have. Um, and, and I'll put aside some of the um, specialized BAS providers in the US that are that are really good at it, but most of the other banks that are going into banking as a service do not have the processes and skills in place to manage uh, um, manage those relationships because they're not with the end consumer, but with a provider to the end consumer. Um, yeah, I mean, that that's exactly one of the sort of recurring points I heard. And, you know, some of this is kind of uh, in the ether speculation, et cetera. But, but the question being, you know, if you have one underlying bank that is working with, you know, a, a BAS platform uh, and maybe, you know, a dozen or dozens of clients that are on that platform, how does that bank effectively supervise, you know, the, the platform, the platform's fintech partners and all of those partners mm -hmm end consumers and, and what are some of the challenges in that model and, and what are some of the approaches, uh, presumably technological approaches, mm -hmm. process approaches that can be used to meet those challenges? So, so the, 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 the way it works in, in Europe, uh, I put Europe and the UK at fairly similar frameworks, um, is that oh, those most of the uh, BAS or embedded finance providers um, over here are regulated entities um, as uh, e-money you know, e institutions. And as regulated entities, the box stops with them. Mm. And therefore, mm -hmm. um, the, the regulator goes to, to that provider and not to the underlying bank if there is one, because the underlying bank would provide you know, um, safeguarding services or others, but um, ultimate responsibility um, is with the e-money institution. Um, and an, an additional thing that um, happens here is that we have uh, like two different models of working with uh, with our customers. One is a is a distributor, and another is an agent. And it depends on on sort of the the type of products that they're uh, procuring from us, on and and the kind of relationship and how far we want to uh, kind of outsource some of those um, regulatory requirements, like AML. Uh, but the agents, uh, we have to notify who they are to the regulator. So you have an FCA um, or a European regulator that has a direct relationship with the provider, um, the, the BAS provider, and an understanding of who their customers are, which is at least, you know, even if it's by name, they know the names, we have to register them. And we take responsibility for... Um, some of the uh, services that those agents sell on our behalf, basically. Mm. So that creates that that brings the regulator a little closer to the front end than, uh, in my view, they are in the US, and that's probably one of the reasons that they're uh, getting concerned because they see a lot of um, things, and they might see. Um, and I'm, I'm, I don't want to name them, but you know, if 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 something happens to Chime. 
um, then the regulators just know about them because they read about it in the news, not because um, they have any too much information about the unregulated chime um, on their books. So they have mm -hmm. to go uh, and learn about what might have happened with one or another um, uh, provider. So I think that's uh, helping. And it's also helping helping us when we go to the US to say, we, we know exactly what those banks are, um, are looking for in terms of their ability to uh, monitor and, 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 and uh, look after those customers. Um, so there's that that level of of additional comfort from uh, from from our experience in the UK, um, but it's something that I think the BAS providers will have to develop, um, and you know work with with a bank sponsor to uh, to ensure those uh, obligations are discharged. Shaul and Jason, both of you brought some really really good points, right? So I just wanted to emphasize and elaborate on some of those. Um, the first point, I think, long story short, right, the TLDR on this is, I do think the regulatory uh, framework in the U.S. needs to evolve based on how products and services are starting to get distributed more and more through fintech companies. Um, to your point, Jason, the mental model you have, which is, uh, isn't bank a service provider to a BAS and then BAS is a service provider to fintechs? Uh, you're absolutely right. That's that that's not true in case of like a demand deposit product or a lending product that uh, that the bank is a sponsor for. But I'll give like Synapse as an example, right? Like I I struggle with this a whole lot as well. And in my mind, a more scalable uh, uh, model is what you described, where uh, for the bank, all they have to look at is the BAS provider and the BAS provider is essentially leveraging the bank for various services. Uh, for that reason, Synapse got regulated on two fronts. We got our own broker dealer license so that uh, we could intermediate cash sweeps given uh, our customer base was growing relatively quickly and we needed to be able to move deposits around versus not. And then second, instead of doing credit products through banks, we got our own lending licenses state by state creating the mental model that you're talking about. So now we sit at a place where uh, Synapse is a service provider to our bank partners on the demand deposit product, which is the DDA product, while uh, the banks are, are, uh, are service providers for us around card sponsorship and payment processing for cash management accounts and our credit accounts, which is our loan accounts. Uh, I do think that is a far more scalable model and structure because we can leverage not just one, but multiple banks for these products. That's kind of number one. Second, some of some of some of the obligations are now like managed at the BAS level and we have direct regulatory exposure uh, so that we can directly work with regulators. Uh, and those pieces have been tremendously helpful just from a scalability perspective. The second piece that actually I want to emphasize because like I, I thought about this and I kind of like uh, tried to figure out um, are we are we better off or worse off with with like the bass concept existing and in my head I think I think we are we're better off because before bass existed just the scale of fintech was so small you could you could have like about two to three to four customers live with a bank. That's pretty much it. And the bank had to do full oversight, which is how are you building your software? 
uh, around transaction monitoring, KYC, AML, and how are you distributing these products, aka marketing, and how are you supporting your customers? And now that problem shrunk by about half because you can only you can look at just the BAS for KYC, AML, and transaction monitoring. And then the only thing that's that scale that needs to scale one-to-one with more fintechs ends up being marketing oversight. And you can do a lot of automation around that. And then also customer support, which you can by and large rely on third-party uh, uh, audits on, right? You can have a reputable third-party do a customer support audit, which is what Synapse does with its fintech customers for our partner banks. Um, and in case of our own regulated entities for us, uh, we have very reputable third parties uh, that are ex-regulators, various companies that essentially engage with our customers to be able to do one, their security audit, and second, uh, their customer support, Reg E and customer support audit uh, once a year. And every single FinTech has to supply that report of the audit uh, to us and then to the bank partners. So I think there are answers to scaling this but it is a legitimate question versus not as to how does marketing oversight and customer support oversight scale as more and more logos exist in the ecosystem. And obviously the solvency exercise, which is like the stress test, right? Like the stress mm-hmm. test is, has become more convoluted because now you have to do a stress test on a bank. And today regulators do not do a stress test on fintechs, which could go insolvent. And if they go insolvent, what's the impact of that? for customers still needs more work. Yeah, and it's it's funny that we're, we're actually, both of us want to be regulated, happy to be regulated, um, and, and, and actually bring um, that little extra transparency to the regulator themselves because it, it is changing. And what, what we're, what Baz is doing is um, changing the unit economics really. And that's what's gonna drive um, adoption by other companies. Um, and that's, that's the opportunity in, in front of us to really change the, um, the unit economics of banking. Um, and, and the one bit that is probably harder to replicate for, uh, for fintechs and for BAS is the, um, is the balance sheet. So the kind of the, the e-money license in the UK is really um, almost a bank without the balance sheet. Um, and if the U.S. had that, um, I think we would have seen much, um, much improved oversight by the regulator and much improved oversight by the fintechs because they would just need to do it. Um, and on that note, I think there's there's an interesting, um, interesting development in, in Wyoming, actually, the, uh, the special purpose the deposit institution, which they developed for uh, crypto and, uh, and crypto um, custodians. I think it's it's really um, interesting because that's a license that uh, doesn't allow them to um, kind of hold the, it's It only allows them to hold deposits, but they can't leverage on it. Um, and ideally, they would get some access to a Fed account um, and therefore access directly to the payment infrastructure. The fact that it doesn't happen and there are lawsuits around it is is another issue related to crypto, but I think fintechs could have used something like that. Um, and, and and it would be beneficial both for the uh, for the platforms as well as the regulator. You're uh, watering into one of my favorite soapbox issues, which is, you know, at least at the moment, uh, current administration 
is very vocal about wanting to encourage competition in the banking sector. And when you look at something like banking as a service, you know, it, it very much feels like a, uh, you know, an aspect of the industry that can facilitate that. Uh, but you're also talking about things like new types of charters. And if you look around at other countries, whether it's the UK, countries in the EU, or Mexico, um, you know, there's this notion of you know a not basically a non-depository bank or an e-money institution um, in the U.S. for a whole host of reasons that we do not have time to talk about. You know, has really struggled to move the ball forward to create an environment that would um, permit these types of ent- create a new category that would govern these types of entities, right? And so the sort of market-driven solution we've seen is this partnership model or this banking as a service model, which I think has some interesting positives, but it, it's kind of a, a reaction to the, the tools that are available. I mean, I, I want to circle back to something that um, you both mentioned around sort of solvency and you know protecting customers. Um, you know, not all fintechs are going to be successful. Um, in the neobank space, we've already seen a number of neobanks in different markets in Australia, in Canada, in the US, uh, exit markets or sort of close up shop and and fail altogether. I'm kind of curious to hear both of your viewpoints on, you know, what are uh, the kinds of steps and due diligence that, you know, banking as a service platforms, you know, and or the underlying bank platforms should be taking upfront when they're evaluating you know, should I be serving this fintech client or not? Uh, and then what are the steps necessary to safeguard not only customers' funds, uh, but safeguard customers' access to those funds and ensure, you know, if there is a wind down of a company, if there's a bankruptcy, it happens in an orderly process where customers, you know, they're notified they have an opportunity to move those funds. They're not in a situation where, you know, oops, my debit card stopped working or oops, you know, the app I use to manage my Neobank account got pulled from the app store, which has happened. Um, I guess let's start uh, with you, Sankit, and hear a little bit about your perspective from where you sit in the US market. Yeah, I think there are a couple of things and this is this is another area why I think having a technology infrastructure in the middle, either owned by a bank or built by like Synapse, uh, uh, I think it's is the right and more elegant solution versus letting everybody build their own tech. Uh, the first thing that Synapse does that's very cut and dry is um, we collect like the cash flow statements and kind of like understand like the financial situation of somebody we're about to engage with. And then we do that on a regular basis. We essentially expect to get that like once every year, we want to be able to know what's going on. Uh, and in this market, we've also debated if we should make that a little bit more frequent than once every year. Uh, and then we give our bank partners visibility to that um, in case of all of our DDA products. And in case of credit and cash management products, obviously our subsidiaries have access to these things as well, which gives us good insight into financially, which company might be trending downward, which means something might need to happen. Uh, and in some cases, we've even had active dialogues where we've proactively reached out to them and said, hey, these things we're worried about, what's 
what's what's the future of the product what's the what's the cash situation um and then based on that took took the right actions in some cases worked with the companies to uh, for a while not onboard new customers um in some cases uh, worked with them a little bit more regularly until uh, their new fundraise uh, fundraise was closed because they were pretty close to doing that and in some really really hard situations when uh, the companies are shutting down uh, working with the companies to start set, sending out email notices to customers um starting to send out uh, um cash instructions so that they can move money and ACH that into another account, um, even send checks out to people, right? So from, from an infrastructure perspective, just the oversight infrastructure perspective, it's like like human intensive, but a pretty manageable process at the end of the day. And it scales as the number of fintech companies you have scale, um, which turns into compliance overhead at the end of the day for a company like Synapse. Uh, the other piece that Synapse has is Let's say all of these safeguards that I just talked about for, uh, for some reason failed. Um, then Synapse also has a very bare bone and small portal for customers to be able to log into and access their money and withdraw in. Because at the because at the end of the day, we need to make sure customers are able to view their balance use their cards and wind down their accounts as quickly as they can. So we've also built out a little bit of a front end um, to be able to do that. And so far we've only had to use that in 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 one case and I wouldn't want to kind of like name the company, but uh, uh, there was this, uh, they had, it, it was a crypto company. They pretty much had uh, uh, a, a theft happen in their ecosystem. And because of that, all the customers uh, uh, were were given a a haircut on their fiat balances as well, but the haircut could not apply to um, uh, funds sitting in their DDA accounts because uh, the fintech company essentially didn't have the rights to be able to settle their own debts with the DDA account. So it literally led to uh, withdrawing customers' funds and sending them back their money without a haircut. And like we had to step up on the supervisory role to be able to essentially make that happen. Um, but though all of those safeguards are in place precisely for the reason that you're describing, Jason, which is at some point companies might operationally go out of business or might have massive losses that that would take them very close to going out of business. And then you have to step into a supervisory role and ensure either that customers have access to these funds or um uh, you're able to effectively work with the fintech company to wind down the program uh, if they're going out of business fully uh, and get the customers their money. And that that leads to compliance and customer support overhead on, on the BASIS side, but there is virtually no other way. And um, if we didn't do that, then essentially you would not have another solution making it far more risky because usually banks don't have a portal for customers to be able to go into and access the fintech money like Bancorp doesn't have that for chime for instance given given the example we were discussing before uh so i do think that that is also overall net positive and that's how we've operationally handled it that makes a ton of sense. I mean, I think given some of the infrastructure pieces, which I know we haven't gone like super far in the weeds and, and we probably shouldn't go there. Uh, but if the money sitting at the partner bank is in one big single FBO, 
Um, you know, that bank may not even really sort of know, understand, have the tools, have the ledger to make sure that that in a timely fashion, you know, gets back to the individual account holders of the consumer facing fintech. Uh, Shawal, I'm curious to hear your, your point of view from uh, the Railser perspective on, on the same topic. Yeah, uh, well, unfortunately, unfortunately, at the same time, um, you know, we've, we've, we've had um, occasions where some of our customers uh, went bust. We had um, one occasion with a sponsor bank uh, that had to return the deposits. Um, and we also, um, a couple of years ago in the UK, um, there was a, a you know, an EMI that uh, went bust as well. And, and, and they had, um, you know, the whole system had um, obligations and, and um, dealings with that, with our companies. So we, we've seen it all. Uh, I think well, the one thing that Sangat said, it's very human intensive. Um, and what we have is clear processes to deal with each of those three scenarios. And I think the due diligence that sponsor banks and um, and pass providers have to do on each other is making sure that those um, processes are well understood um, and can happen. Um, you know, whether the funds are held in um, individual accounts or, um, or an omnibus account, um, it's neither here nor there because the information of who, who owns what is, is, has to be on one of uh, or both sides of the uh, of the equation, the sponsor and, and and the platform. So having that clear process that both sides are aware of um, and have checked that it that it existed and have audited audited it to a certain extent um, should give them comfort that if the um, unthinkable happens, then everybody knows what's happening. Um, so I know you wrote about a failure the, the other week, um, and, and to me that's a failure of oversight um, on both sides. It's just un, unacceptable. And if there was a process and people knew uh, the, the, the customer support, um, people knew exactly where the funds are and how to manually drive them when um, when the apps fail or, or whatever, uh, then that would not have happened. Yeah, that was, uh, I think, you know, hopefully an outlier and, and hopefully not something, you know, that I, we see more of in the ecosystem. I, I, I don't think so. Um, and again, it's it's a little bit, maybe a little more, um, you know, a few more examples um, over here on this side of the Atlantic um, of customers that have, that, you know, went bust and um, the overall impact on the um, on the users was not so good, no, not so bad. Um, you know, it's always going to be painful. Um, and then we need to accept that when a company fails, um, there is pain to the customer. But as long as a reasonable, um, as long as the funds are returned in reasonable time, then the regulators would not um, be too worried about it. So um, it's it's about preparation. Um, it's about knowing where uh, the other what, what what the other side has to do, knowing what you have to do, and keeping the keeping the consumer at the uh, at the top of top of the mind. Definitely makes sense. Final question for each of you gentlemen. Uh, anything you're particularly keeping an eye on in the sector, in the space overall, or any uh, any predictions you want to make about the direction of banking as a service, you know, regulation, et cetera. Uh, why don't we start with you, Shaul? 
Um, so I'm most excited about the opportunities outside um, what we would historically call fintech. Um, and and when, I, when I say fintech, I mean companies whose main business model is delivering a financial product. Uh, but we all know that a financial product is usually not uh, the end goal, but it's, it's a supporting actor uh, in a bigger show. So bringing um, that supporting act into um, existing or new um, customer journeys, I think, is the great um, is the great opportunity. And what, and what I'm what I'm looking for, um, on we're seeing companies like Shopify who started in in you know with one business model, but um, turns out about forty percent of their revenue is driven by um, the financial products that are supporting their core um product offering of you know building build, building shop uh, internet um, shops so i think the uh, opportunities are endless um i don't know which sector is going to be um you know the, the the largest and the quickest uh taker of, of embedded finance um but just gotta, just because the opportunities are endless um so that's what i'm looking at i think this would inc would increase uh, regulatory oversight um because all of a sudden this is uh products that are distributed um completely outside of the um you know the world garden of of the regulators um but there are ways around that there are ways to to sorry to uh create that uh, level of transparency and openness um, and, and made the data available to the regulators to, to, to make sure that the, customer, the, the end consumer is protected, even though um, they actually um, procure the service, not from a regulated entity. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Pete, what are you keeping your eye on or something you're excited about in the space in the coming months, years? Yeah, there are two things. One is, I think, a use case. And second, I think, is a geeky infrastructural thing that I'm really excited about. Um, the use case, uh, there has been a, to like Charles point, right, like grown demand of embedded finance and the demands growing and growing more. But in there, there is a use case called global uh, uh, finance, which is being able to kind of like provide a very unified experience around financial services, especially surrounding store value that works for people in different countries equally well, right? Wise did that quite well with their Wise card. Uh, and now it seems like more and more people are wanting to do similar things. So I think the spike in that interest is 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 personally really exciting for me because like my, my parents live in India, I live here, and I've always kind of like envisioned a world where we would both, uh, all, all of us, the family and I, would, we'd all be able to kind of like bank together. Um, and uh, we've never had this opportunity for like last 10, 12 years. So um, I'm, I'm super excited about that, which is being able to kind of like bring families closer together with, with global finance. One thing that I'm geeking out on that I'm like exceptionally excited about um, is the whole concept around multi-bank enablement, which is being able to uh, enable fintech companies to go live with multiple banks at the same time. Uh, I think as fintech companies grow and evolve more and more uh, for two reasons, 
uh, the one-to-one relationship between banks and fintechs is not going to work as well. One, not every bank is good at everything, which is not every bank is good at uh, card issuance and ACH processing. Some banks are good at some, some banks are good at the other. So just being able to provide a seamless multi-bank product um, at Synapse, like we're super excited about that as of lately, and I think others will do the same thing. And second, just having like load balancing and redundancy where you have multiple banks uh, uh, powering your product. Uh, so I think from an infrastructure perspective, recently I've been geeking out on that a whole lot. Um, and then I think the second question was my prediction. Um, my, my, my prediction is I think more and more basses will will get regulated in the US uh, at the very least. And then very large fintechs uh, will also seek direct regulatory uh, oversight. Um, AKA, I think like more and more, I think like bond unit, treasury prime, uh, all, all these people will probably do something similar to Synapse, if not exactly the same, which is like uh, get, get their own licenses. Um, for deposits and credit and maybe MTLs if they have a lot of payment processing use cases, I think that would be more, that's that's gonna happen over the course of the next two years. And I think some very large fintechs like Chime uh, might seek direct regulation as well. I do really appreciate both of you uh, guys taking the time to come and uh, chat about banking as a service and regulation. Real quick, uh, Sankeet, where can people find out more about Synapse and follow you? Yeah, um, if you want to learn more about Synapse, you can go to synapsefi.com. And if you want to get in touch with me, um, I'm fairly active on LinkedIn and then fairly discreetly active on Twitter, more active on DMs than tweets. And handle on both is just Sinkat, my first name. Got it. And uh, Shul, where can people find out more about Railser uh, and follow you if they desire to? Sure. Uh, we're at uh, railser.com, that um, R-A-I-L-S-R.com. Um, and I'm actually more active on Twitter and less on LinkedIn uh, at Chow David UK um, is my handle. All right. Thank you so much, guys. Uh, until next time, this has been FinTech Business Podcast. Mm-hmm.